Everything changed. That's the title of our message tonight. Uh, that's as as um, as pretty declarative as that statement is. Uh, it still is an understatement for what Christmas actually means to the world and what it produced in the world and provided for the world. So if you have a Bible, uh, familiar ground, uh, familiar text that I hope you will read again and again. It's probably the most well-read or the most read scripture, uh, the most studied scripture, not just this time of year, but all of the year. This is the one, you know, Charlie Brown doesn't read any other Bible passage that I'm familiar with, right? Uh, other other secular uh, television and movies, uh, you'll hear this scripture read and quoted. Um, songs that are saying, quote this chapter, uh, we'll probably look at this chapter again come Christmas. Christmas Eve, uh, again, probably the most prolific chapter of the Bible in terms of being read the most and heard the most and sang the most, uh, repeated the most and known the most about, and that is Luke chapter 2. But I do believe, as much as you've heard this chapter preached, as much as I've preached this chapter more than probably any other, uh, I think we'll leave here tonight with something fresh, something new, something that will benefit from us. And regardless if it's new, if you've heard it before, hearing it again, I think, is worthwhile. Uh, because every year that Christmas comes, it may feel like the last few Christmases, yet it always leaves us with something something new and something different. So uh, again, if you have a Bible, we'll look at Luke 2 in just a few minutes. Uh, I want to kind of recap what we've studied so far in chapters one, chapter 1. Chapter 1 is a long chapter. We didn't look at it verse by verse, but we did study it kind of um, as a whole over the last couple of weeks. And, and, and I don't know about you, but I never get tired. I never get tired of reading the Christmas story. I never get tired of preparing to preach the Christmas story. And I never get tired of, of hearing what God did and because it reminds me of what God can still do and what God still does. Uh, Christmas is the gift that keeps on giving, right? Maybe you received a gift years ago that you still use. Uh, well, Christmas gives us a gift, uh, the, the real gift of Christmas, uh, and, and it keeps on giving. And, and really what I I think we've learned the last couple of weeks and what I hope that this study called Christmas Miracles has done for us and, and, and maybe tonight we can we can hopefully take it to the to the to the full extent. Uh, Christmas really opens our minds and uh, uh, increases our capacity to believe in the miraculous. Now again I know that we live in a world that uh, it's hard to believe in things that we can't explain yet the Christmas story is full of things that we cannot explain yet we believe them because we've been impacted by what they brought into the world right and and I hope that we've realized that we've received a lot of miracles that maybe we, we wouldn't quantify as miracles from, from, our, from the way we receive them or observe them. Yet when we realize what God was doing behind the scenes and we realize what God is doing behind the scenes at all times and how much of a miracle it is that you and I are here tonight as we've studied about how we receive God's word, have we, we've studied about God being with us, his spirit being with us. I hope that you've understood that there's a lot of miracles taking place every single day uh, and the fact that you and I can come to God and approach God and know God, that is a miracle in and of itself. Uh, and, and we've studied how Christmas is really built on the foundation of the miraculous. And, and we've spent the last couple of weeks talking about how at the heart of Christmas is the miracle working power of God, how God set the stage for Israel by putting their backs against the wall, right? And you'll remember that, that God went silent on Israel. He didn't have to, but he did it, I think, to make it look even more miraculous when he did break through and when he did intervene, he put their backs against the wall. He didn't speak to them for 400 years. He put them in the most dire state that they could possibly be in so that when he broke through, so that when he intervened, 
it made his intervention stand out that much more bold and that much more brilliant. Uh, we've heard the story of Zechariah in the temple. Uh, after 400 years of silence and distance from God, an angel appeared and announced that God was going to get back in the game, that God was going to fight on Israel's behalf, that though the nation would not immediately turn to him, he was going to do something new to get their attention. Uh, Luke chapter 1 verse 16, God told Zechariah that the, the child that he and his wife would have would turn many of the children of Israel back to the Lord their God, that the purpose that God was breaking the silence, the reason why God was giving them this child was for one reason and one reason only, to bring not just Israel, but bring the world back to him. That God was going to start something with the Christmas story, with the purpose of bringing people back to him. So why did God allow Christmas to happen or cause Christmas to happen because he wanted to reach us, right? He didn't have to do it. He did it because he wanted to find us because we had lost our way. Zechariah was told by the angel that the child that he and his wife would have would turn people back to God. And of course, needless to say, that's exactly what happened as a byproduct, not, not just their child, but the other child that's going to that's gonna be born. Uh, the reality is, though, hardly anybody would even know that they had a child for, for, for 30 years uh, because the miracles that took place in Luke 1 and Luke 2 don't have a widespread impact for a few decades. And that's because um, when, when Zechariah and his wife are well past childbearing years, are told they would have a baby who would be Israel's first prophet since Malachi, uh, he didn't really come on the public scene until he was 30 years old. John the Baptist it does not become a household name for 30 years from Luke 1. So even though Luke 1 seems like a moment in time where everybody was tuned in, really nobody was tuned in except for Zachariah and Elizabeth and, and maybe a few people in their circle, yet that miracle, the seed was planted behind the scenes as it was, unknown as it was. The miracle was planted. Now, uh, of course, uncelebrated as it was, we see where it went. And, and we know, of course, John, John the Baptist would, would be that, that prophet, that messenger that would point people back to the Lord God. Uh, if you'll remember, when they tried to give John, when they tried to name John um, over in verse 61 uh, of chapter 1, uh, when they tried to name him, the presiding uh, religious figures in the temple said, whoa, 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 you, you can't name him John. That's not a family name. That's not the name uh, of, of his father. That's not the household or the family name. And they pressured them to give him a different name. And, and, and they said to them, there's no one among your relatives who was called by this name. And that was, I think, the sign that the world was pushing back, that Christmas was going to bring people out of the box they were stuck in. Christmas was going to bring the miracle-working power to the world to change people's lives, to save people's lives, to show us that we did not have to stay in the same rut, in the same bondage, in the same doldrum that we had been taught we must stay in. And John the Baptist, of course, was given that name because his parents believed, his parents believed that God was stepping back and that God was going to change 
the world under the miraculous influence of God. They knew they could step outside the box and believe in bigger things to come. And, and I think Christmas just reminds us that God has done something in the world that has changed the world and that we don't have to keep doing things like we were told we had to do them. We don't have to continue to operate under the world and its systems, but we can have faith that God has indeed broke through, that God has indeed provided salvation and that you and I, our lives can be changed. Nobody believed that God was anywhere close or engaged at all, but Zachariah and Elizabeth's faith testified that his miracle working power was about to be felt by the whole world. Uh, but before that, though, uh, Elizabeth's cousin would be visited by God's angel and would get a taste of the miraculous herself. And of course, her cousin was a young woman named Mary. Uh, Mary was a, was a young woman engaged to a man named Joseph who God chose to bring his son into the world through. And we've heard that story so many times, but it, it should not be lost on us just how miraculous that was. Gabriel in chapter 1, verse 35, Gabriel told Mary at when she did not understand how this was going to happen, uh, when, when Gabriel told, he told Mary this, that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. So Gabriel told Mary that God was going to do the unthinkable, uh, that God was going to enter the human race, that God was going to become incarnate. And, and again, our minds will never fully comprehend this because we are, fra we are finite, fragile creatures, right? We are, we, we're, we're just humans. We're just in our flesh. Yet, to try to grab, grasp this the best we can, I, I think it's a worthwhile effort that God was going to debase himself, condescend himself, humiliate himself literally, that God was going to humble himself in, in the most extreme way, that God was going to take on our flesh. And, and I don't want you to ever move past that too quickly because that is not something that, that you read the Old Testament and you read about God's holiness and you think about God's holiness and how God uh, is so much beyond us and so much higher than us and so much more glorious than us. And, and you read about how they couldn't even get in his presence in the Old Testament. And you read about um, how they had to get behind the cleft of the rock and all these things that were true uh, that, that because the contrast between us and God is so great uh, that, that Adam and Eve had to be banished from the garden because they could not stay in the presence of God in their sin yet God would take on the very flesh of the people that were far from him? God, who had no limitations or restrictions, put on himself the limits and the weakness of humanity. This is why the incarnation matters. It's why Christmas matters. That God, who is unlimited in his power and his majesty and all the things that you want to attribute to God, God, who has no limits and has no restrictions, he voluntarily put on himself the limits and the governor of humanity, the weakness of humanity. I mean, think about this. God, who had had never slept before would have to sleep. God, who had never got tired before, would get tired. God, who never felt pain or physical toil, would have to feel pain and physical toil, right? God, who never waited on anything or anyone, would have to wait on people like Jesus waited on people. I mean, when you think about what God stepped into, there's no reason why he would ever do that or should ever do that. He put on himself the limits. He put on himself the restrictions and the restraint of humanity. Our inglorious image 
overshadowed his glorious presence. I mean, talk about the miraculous. That God would desire to do this is as big a miracle as how he did this. I mean, we can spend years and years talking about and debating how did this happen? What does it mean that the Holy Spirit overshadowed her and that God became man? I mean, we can debate that and theologians have done that and people have all sorts of opinions about how that happened. But the fact that God desired to do that is a bigger miracle, I think, than how it happened. Yes, it's a miracle that it could happen, but that God desired it. I mean, I don't know how things worked in heaven and how God, you know, if the angels even were privy to his plan, but can you imagine God in heaven, right, and and, and the Trinity being complete as it was, and and we can't imagine, we can't, you know, understand how that works, but that God would would have that conversation, hey, I know how we're going to fix it. I know how we're going to fix it. I'm going to become one of them. I'm going to put on the very flesh that they disgraced me with. I'm going to put on the image that they have tarnished. I'm going to be one of them so that they might become one of us or not like God, but belong to God and be in the family of God. I mean, just imagine where that rationale came from. Of course, Mary's conception was more than any miracle than we could ever imagine as well. Why was it so important that God enter creation this way? It's because the, the Messiah would not just be an anointed man. The Messiah would be a God man. This is very important to distinguish. John the Baptist, like all the prophets before him, was an anointed man. He was a sinner. He was a fallen creature who was anointed by God. He wasn't perfect. He wasn't infallible, just like Moses, just like or Abraham before him and Moses before, after him and David and Solomon and Isaiah and all the other prophets. John the Baptist was an anointed man. He was a n- normal person with God's anointing on him. But Jesus was not just an anointed man. He was God and man. Never been one like him before. Never will be one like him after, right? There is one like him. Jesus was God and man at the same time. Equally divine and equally human. So God performed a miracle not seen since he created Adam out of the dirt. Yet he didn't start from scratch this time. The Bible calls Jesus the second Adam. Right? He created Adam out of the dirt and breathed in him a, a living soul. But this time, he didn't make man out of the sand. He used Adam's lineage as the foundation, as the base. And, and this might be a little bit graphic for your taste, but, but, but I, I want you to understand what verse 35 tells us. That when it says the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, that he took Adam's DNA through Mary's womb and overshadowed her with the Holy Spirit. That is the immaculate conception. Mary wasn't aware that it happened, other than that, it, that how it would take place. Mary's eggs, right, were the last hope for humanity. The Spirit of God was the catalyst that performed the greatest miracle to ever take place. Mary conceived the one and only God-man, the eggs of the human race, Adam's lineage with God's spirit so that the boy would be virgin born. He wouldn't carry the curse of Adam that fathers passed along to their children. He bore the flesh of Adam, but he would possess the spirit of God being God in flesh. So if you wonder, hey, why does the virgin birth matter? That's why it matters. Because yes, he was a child of Adam, but he wasn't fathered by Adam. He was fathered by God Almighty. And that's why through him and only through him we can be saved because Adam 
brought sin into the world and to everyone that came through Adam, sin was born in them and sin was from them, in them at birth, in us at birth. Yet God came into the world through a miraculous set of circumstances and only through him can we be saved because he could do for us what we could not do for ourselves because he was not born in sin like us. Now this brings us to Luke 2 with all the background information laid out, with Mary's carrying the baby across the full term, uh, uh, about to come to full term, um, all that's left is to look at one of the most recognizable and well-told stories in all of history. And again, that is recorded for us in Luke chapter two. And as we go through this chapter, the familiar Christmas story, some of the miracles stand out very clearly, but a few of the miracles that we're going to focus on, uh, they require a little bit more digging around in history uh, that, that I think bring a tremendous amount of, of, of revelation to us once we begin to unpack them. Uh, so as we read Luke 2, I want you to think about what it reveals to us or what it shows us. It highlights our desperation. We're going to talk about how in this chapter we see our desperation as sinners, Yet also we see our salvation revealed. So our desperation and our salvation are both tucked away in this same chapter. So look with me, follow along with me. You probably can quote most of this by heart. Luke 2, verse 1 through 7. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered or taxed. The census first took place when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city or his family's city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, into the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. So he would travel a few a hundred miles or so south from Nazareth to Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, wife who was with child or great with child, right, on the verge of, of having the child. So it was that while they were there, that's a, a sentence you don't need to, to, to overlook, while they were there, the days were completed for her to be dis- delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger because there was no room. There was no place for them in the end. So first things first, we got to talk about the elephant in the room um, or, or really the empire in the room that we are introduced to in verse number one. Oh, so subtly. Uh, we're told not about the empire, but about the emperor, that's Caesar Augustus. Now, obviously, everybody in those days would have been well aware of who ruled the world and what the world was like. Uh, and if you know history, you know what was going on. But if you're just reading Luke's story, which uh, a lot of people just pick the Bible up and they just read through it without really knowing what's going on outside of, of the Bible. Uh, and, and Luke wants us to be able to understand this and, and kind of figure it out along the way. Uh, if you're just reading Luke's story, it's interesting that he doesn't mention the true power over Israel until now. Back in chapter 1, you'll remember, he opens up the story by telling us that Israel was ruled by a king, a king named Herod. That's how he begins the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, that in those days there was a, uh, there was a king named Herod who ruled over Israel. Uh, and I think Luke wants us to pause and think about where the story left off 400 years. Because again, we're, tell, we're talking about how Luke is writing the story as God finally talking again. It left off with Malachi, 
and now God is starting the story back. Now, if you remember back 400 years, uh, God uh, had brought the nation of Israel back into the land after being exiled under Babylon, under Persia. They rebuilt the temple under Ezra. Nehemiah was their governor, kind of a puppet under, or a vassal leader under Persia. Uh, Nehemiah was a descendant of David, and a lot of people had hopes that Nehemiah or his son would become king once Israel got free from Persia. And maybe David's throne would be filled once again by Nehemiah or one of his children and maybe the the lineage of Judah would be restored and the kingdom of Israel could be restored. Uh, And there was a brief period of time um, during the intertestament period where the the Maccabean people um, actually revolted against some of their, um, uh, uh, the Greek overlords and and created an independent Israel once again, but that was very short-lived. Uh, and at this point in history, Israel didn't have a real king. Uh, they had a, a fake king, a pretend king named Herod, who wasn't even Jewish. Uh, and, and we find out that he was really just put in place to taunt the Jews, which was a common practice that empires did in those days. Uh, but again, if you didn't know history, you wouldn't really know that Israel was under imperial rule. When, you la- when the story left off, they were trying to break free from Persia. And now, 400 years later, oh, it looks like they have their own king. But again, chapter 2 says there's a greater king. There's somebody bigger in charge. And that somebody bigger in charge is Caesar Augustus. And if you know Caesar Augustus, you know that he was the emperor of the Roman, the Roman Empire. Now, we, we left off, Rome was an unknown city ruled by the Greeks, but things had changed after 400 years. Rome slowly moved beyond the land of Italy, conquering surrounding territories. And when Alexander the Great fell and his kingdom was divided, Rome challenged kingdom after kingdom. And across 300 years, uh, they built an army that was unbeatable. And eventually, all of the, the surrounding nations bent the knee to the Roman leader, the Roman king named Julius Caesar. And in 47 BC, again about 45 or so years before the story of Luke 2 takes place, in 47 BC, Julius declares himself the dictator of the Roman Republic, soon to be reorganized as the Roman Empire. It was really the culmination of all the different kingdoms that had ruled the world at this, to this point. The world was used to being conquered and used to being ruled. And as Rome took advantage of a world that was beaten into submission, fearful for their lives, desperate for order, even if it came through oppression, Rome easily conquered the world. And I mean conquered the world from all of Europe, most of Africa, all the Middle East, all the way over to, to India, all throughout the territories of Asia. And it was over the past 300 years as the world had come under the global rule of Alexander that many of the cultures and countries began questioning their religions. Um, when Alexander conquered in the name of Zeus, he told all of the different lands that he conquered uh, that your gods are dead. Uh, he told the Egyptians, he told all the Middle Eastern people, he told the Babylonians and the Persians and all the other people, hey, your gods are dead. Zeus is my God. I am the king of the world. Zeus is the God of the king of the world. So my God has beaten your gods. The cosmic war has left there to be one God on top. You should worship Zeus because your gods have failed to protect you. And much of the world, 
begin to do that. Much of the world, except for a few small nations like Israel, much of the world began to worship Zeus because, again, he was the most powerful god, clearly. Uh, when Rome took over, uh, the main god of Rome being Jupiter, it kind of, the similar story took place. But with Julius Caesar having so much power and so much recognition, even Rome began rethinking how they understood religion uh, and moving away from that pantheon of, of gods that they worship. Uh, and, and this is what makes this era in the, pinnac the pinnacle of this ancient idea of religion and empire. Most ancient kings believed that they were in power because the gods favored them over everyone else, which is, again, what happened with Alexander, what happened with Julius uh, originally. His family, Julius Caesar, actually was a priest before he became a politician. Uh, he built temples. He dedicated work, served the Roman gods in the temples. And, and long story short, when Julius became a politician and became a leader in the Roman Republic and eventually became the dictator of the Roman Empire, uh, eventually he began to realize that he didn't really need the gods because look who was in charge and look how he took the power not with the help of some god that he couldn't see but by his own strength and his own might and as he became such a renowned leader and as he began to be so praised and lauded uh, the land became so spellbound by Julius Caesar that after he died the Roman Senate did something outrageous that had never taken place before in any other culture uh, uh, that, that you can study throughout history. Julius Caesar was, rec was, was recommended posthumously in front of the Roman Senate to be elevated above the pantheon of Roman gods. Julius Caesar was deified as in recognized as God, not just of Rome, but of the whole world. And if you were to say, hey, why, how, how can that be? Or explain that, they would say, look what he's done. He's conquered the world. He has, paint, he has built his statues all over the world. We've never seen Zeus. We've never seen Jupiter. We've never seen those gods you hear about in the myths. But we've seen Julius Caesar. We've seen what he has done. And there is no one like Caesar. So the name Caesar began to be not just a name used for kings, but a name used for God. That's very important. So the Romans, under all the rule, under their rule, weren't just some under some pantheon of God, but literally they could point to the God on the throne. And here's where I need you to, to check back in in case you've kind of got bored with the history lesson, um, because this is a big deal. Not so much for Julius Caesar, he was dead. But for his adopted son, this was a really big deal. Now, maybe you didn't know, but Julius did not like his son, who we don't know much about through history, but he, had a, he believed his nephew, Octavius, was fit to be a king. So he adopted Octavius and made him the heir apparent. And you know who Octavius is because he was given a different name when he was adopted, and that name is Augustus Caesar. Augustus Caesar. When he was given the throne of his father, there was no one more invested in and benefited by Julius' divine elevation than Augustus because when he became emperor, he was not just the son of the emperor. Everybody knew Augustus Caesar as son of Julius, the god. So if you were a Roman 2,000 years ago and you were going around through the empire when, Octa when Octavius, named Julius now, was made the king, you did not just point to the king of Rome, you pointed to the son of God 
who we could see with our own eyes, who ruled with an iron fist. He used that title. He used that divine connection to conquer the world. Nobody dared mess with Augustus Caesar because he was the literal son of God, or so they thought. Now, you can see how this is a big deal because the world that was worshipped in worshipped silent gods or invisible gods or idols but now nobody had to wonder where is God at or where are the gods at because you could see him on the throne of Rome and in case you didn't know all the coins circa 20 BC 10 BC 10 AD 20 AD All the coins under Augustus' empire were printed with the Latin phrase divi filius, which translated says son of God. If you were alive 2,000 years ago, the coin in your pocket would have a picture of Caesar Augustus on one side and the Latin phrase son of God on the back side. The whole world fell under his rule, fell under his spell, because after all, how could you contest with the man who had the whole world in his hands? Augustus had the power of God to at his bidding, right? He was the king. He was in charge. If you mess with him, it might tragedy might come. Disaster could come. Every person that got out of line would interpret their fall as being a curse from the Son of God who ruled on Rome's throne. So whispers begin spreading all around the empire that if, if this is what it's like to have God with us, that if Rome, under Rome, in a world where the gods now dwelled among us, then there was no hope, there was no joy, there was no peace, there was no salvation because the gods clearly were not for us because look at what Rome is doing to us. And maybe this is the most understated miracle to come out of the Christmas story. And it's why I love talking about it so much. The world was so beaten down and so despondent as it could ever be. And I don't just say this to make you feel better about the world that you live in. I mean this. The world 2,000 years ago was a dark, dark, dark place. And the reason why it was so dark was the power in charge, the one man in charge, if you disagreed with him, he got rid of you. In today's world, there's some twisted people in the world. Yes, there are some people that suffer because they dissent. But for the most part, you and I can think what we want to think and do what we want to do. And there are consequences in some nations, but not, not every nation. But the ancient world, if you disagree with the man who called himself the Son of God, you were crucified. In his capital, he built two arenas. If you go to downtown Charlotte, there's a great uh, arena, right, where they play basketball and they do all sorts of, of concerts. There's another one down the road that they do uh, play hockey in and, and uh, uh, do all sorts of plays and, and, and theatrics, right? But in, in ancient Rome, there were two arenas built for entertainment. One was called a circus and one was called a coliseum. But it wasn't like the circus you went to when you were younger and it wasn't like a coliseum you've been to to watch somebody play ball. In Caesar's circus and in Caesar's Colosseum, people would gather to watch for entertainment the poor and the slaves and the criminals be tortured to death. And there was never an occasion where where there was a seat available. Standing room only. 
Everybody would go to the Roman capital to watch people systematically be torn apart and fed to animals because that's how dark the world was. The emperor would ride out in the middle of the arena and he would say, this is what happens if you disobey me. And if you don't get the pleasure of dying in my arena, then I'll hang you on a cross in your own hometown. Ask the Jews, ask the Egyptians, ask the Arabians. They all have suffered. And again, women, women in the ancient world, women 2,000 years ago had zero rights. Women were traded like cattle in the ancient world. Children were not automatically heirs to their father's estate as proven by the fact that Julius adopted Augustus because he didn't like his own son. In the ancient world, in, Roman, in Rome's world, uh, fathers had the option to, dis, to abandon any son that they thought that wasn't fit or wasn't, uh, wasn't uh, you know, worthy of the title of their last name. And when they were a teenager, they would either adopt their own sons and give them their, their inheritance, or they would cast them out and adopt someone else to take their place. Little girls were almost always abandoned at birth, cast into the river or laid beside the river and let, and let eat by the wolves. Polygamy was the standard. Every man bought as many wives as he could afford. Pagan priests interpreted everything based on the mood of the emperor and left the fate of the people up to whatever he demanded. In the ancient world, under under the Roman Empire rule, that if there was a plague that broke out in a town or a village, they would take all of the the sick people and they they would gather them in one place. And they would pull everybody else out of the village. They would leave women and children behind until everybody was gone. And they would, bring, they would go back in and drag the corpses to the river and let them wash away. Again, I know the world is not the best place today. But I can't overstate just how dark it was 2,000 years ago. And in the name of all that, or, or, you know, over all of that was a man who claimed to be God in flesh. So in those days, in those days, there was no hope, no peace, no joy. Rome boasted that they brought peace on earth, but nobody had peace in their hearts. The miracle is that all of these years later, things have changed, haven't they? That you can visit the city of Rome. And you can walk through the ruins of the Colosseum. And you can go to where the circus that Caesar built was. But there's no circus anymore where people were killed for sport. There's a church built on that site, named after a Jewish fisherman with the most glorious painting that has ever been seen on its ceiling. So maybe the greatest miracle to come out of the story is and the greatest proof that we should pay attention to what God did 2,000 years ago is that Augustus Caesar is just a footnote in the birth story of a Jewish baby. You know why you know who Augustus Caesar is? Maybe you went to school and you studied this. Hopefully you didn't bore yourself with that stuff like I did. You know why you know what, who Augustus Caesar is? Because you read about him in Luke chapter 2, Right? You don't know that he was called the son of God. You don't know that he was the king of the world. You don't care about all that stuff. It doesn't matter, does it? He is a footnote in the birth of a Jewish baby. People name their dogs after Caesar, right? 
not the kids. That's the miracle of Christmas. The self-proclaimed son of God who ruled the world is remembered as the guy who played the opening act for the son of God, the true son of God, who rules the universe. Now, Augustus Caesar wanted to flex his power by having a, a census to, to, to boost his, his, his glory and uh, increase taxes. And, of course, that's why uh, we are told about Augustus, because he declared a census that made Joseph go back to Bethlehem, uh, which, of course, was predicted by the prophet Micah uh, a couple hundred years before. Uh, you, O Bethlehem, Epaphra, which is the province of the land, uh, are too little among the clans of Judah, but... You shall come forth for me, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to rule Israel, whose coming forth is from old, the ancient of days. So again, Micah predicted this, but we, Micah didn't know that, oh, the only reason why Joseph would go to Bethlehem and his wife would go with him is because Caesar declared a census that made him go from Nazareth to Bethlehem at the last minute, right? We think, well, that was just, you know, that was all coincidence. No, God planned all this out, Right? God's timing is seen in this whole story. And it's important to remember that because that causes us to pay attention to every detail, not just the Caesar part, but every other element of the story. Galatians 4.4 says that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. So all this was part of God's plan. Caesar, Rome, the, the, the census, all that was a part of a plan. None of the details are incidental. I hope that is clear to you tonight. We've talked about this on another occasion, but I, want you to, I don't want you to pass over verse 6 and 7 very quickly where it says that while they were there, there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. Now, while they were there, that tells me that they had been there a few days. They checked into town. They were going to have to, it was going to be a couple day process of getting registered and waiting in line and maybe you would get, your number would be drawn on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, but you had to be there on Monday in case, you, in case they said to come to the, to the courthouse and do the thing. So they were staying, most likely they were staying in and in because, right? They, they got there a couple days and they, they stayed there a couple days but while they were there it says she brought forth her firstborn son but they didn't have a special room in the inn like you would expect a, a baby to get in, in today's world right a nice uh, comfortable place for the mother and the child no they were they had to go to 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 a manger they had to go to a, a stable and she had to lay him in a manger because there was no room for him in the end, but there was room, but they were asked to leave, right? And we think about them getting into town last minute and having to go out to the barn because, hey, we can't get into the end, but it says they were there. They were there while they were there. But then somebody knocked on their door and said, hey, you know, I've got some complaints that um, she's in labor, and that means some stuff's going to happen and that, that, that we can't really have here because people are going to be made unclean. So maybe you should... Hit the road before things get messy. There was no place for them. Most importantly, there was no place for him. Oh, Joseph, you can stay, but your wife, whatever, whoever she's got with her, they better go. Under the law, 
That's what Galatians told us, right? Now, the law that was said that women and their, unbo- and their newborn babies were unclean until they were cleansed at the temple and dedicated and circumcised. So for the week between birth and circumcision, they were unclean. And if you were unclean in those days, you couldn't be near anybody else lest you make them unclean. So the innkeeper, probably because he was worried about his business being wrecked at the time, said, hey, the she and the baby better get away from here. Oh, but there's a place outside of town. Uh, there's, there's a stable. There's a barn outside of town. You can go there and stay because nobody's clean there. The only people that hang out there are shepherds and they're always unclean. So you will fit in there perfectly. So Joseph, Mary, and the baby or or the baby-to-be, they go to the stable and then, of course, the baby comes and they lay him in a manger. But can you imagine no place for the Son of God? That's the implication, right? The innkeeper says there's no room for him. Caesar Augustus wanted to take a census of the population so he could boost his own ego. But while that was going on, another person was being born that would threaten him, right? And there's no room for that in the world. But I think there's another miracle here. It's how it's to change how we see people, change how others, how we see others. God came into the world and was immediately cast out, proving that none of us are too unclean or too unwelcome to him because he's right there with the worst offenders. Remember, it was God that told Samuel when he was in Bethlehem looking for the next king. God told Samuel, do not look on well, I think I, I must have deleted that. God told Samuel that don't look on the outward appearance, look on the inner side, look on the heart. All these years later, nobody had adopted that belief, but the miracle of Christmas is that there is now a new standard that God judges the world by, that we are accepted as we are because Jesus came as one of us and identified with us in every way, even in our uncleanness, even in our being cast out. Read with me verse 8 through 20 and we'll wrap up. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And now we understand why to you is even more personal because literally he was in the place that they would often go to rest with their animals. They didn't usually expect to see people in those stables because nobody wanted to be around shepherds because, of course, they were unclean. This will be a sign to you that you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And so it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph in the babe lying in a manger and when they had seen him they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning the the child and all those who heard it marveled at these things which were told them by the shepherds but Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart then the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told to them We'll wrap up by talking about one last miracle. 
We're told an important nugget of detail. Jesus was born at night or as it was getting dark. You know, God always associated and connected his miracle working power with light in the Bible. Particularly light against darkness, stars in the night sky. We see on the screen Genesis 1-3, it was dark and God said, let there be light. And there was light. Exodus 13, when they came out of Egypt, uh, God guided them by night with a pillar of fire to give them light. God's specialty is putting light in the dark sky to give people direction. God loves turning the lights on when it's really dark. So uh, again, God plans everything perfectly, doesn't he? God had the census plan. He knew Caesar and all the thing about Rome. He knew all that was going to happen. He knew the innkeeper couldn't have the unclean people in the room, right? He knew all this was going to happen. He planned it all perfectly. So it's fitting that Jesus was born at night, right? It was his plan. It was God's plan that the light of the world be born in the dark of night. It was his plan to have the dark sky serve as the backdrop for the stage when the angels sung their song. The greatest miracles of the greatest of all miracles is that the darkness is never greater than God's light. The world that was was very dark. The world that we live in today is very dark, very dark. Morally, all the different ways you can interpret it, right? The world is dark. And God turned the light on. John 1.5 says the light has come into the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it and the darkness never will overcome it. You know, we started this series by talking about why wintertime is the perfect season and to, to really understand the Christmas message and the meaning of Christmas. When our world is at its darkest, God turned on the brightest of lights so that his miracle working power might reach all of us. It changed the world 2,000 years ago and it can still change your world tonight. If, 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 instead of looking at how dark the world is and instead of fretting over how dark the world is, instead of worrying about how all those pieces are gonna be worked out, how what's gonna happen to the Caesars of the world? What's gonna happen to the innkeepers of the world? How are we gonna figure all this out because all the things are working against us? If you keep your eyes on this picture, that in the darkest of night, God put his Savior, our Savior, in the most unknown, unlikely of places, God put the light in the sky over those individuals, that God brought Jesus into the world. Our king does not rule from afar, only considering himself. No, he came down from heaven and was void of privilege from the very beginning. He was born in a stable and was wrapped in rags to cover the blood and all the uncleanness and to keep him warm, right? That's the scene that Jesus was born in. It wasn't glamorous. It wasn't luxurious, right? It was completely uh, obscure and, and, and was completely off everybody's radar, And it was in that moment that the earth and heaven have never been closer. Think about that. In this moment, in the night that Jesus was born, the sky was ripped open and angels stepped from heaven to earth and sang that God was with us. God was revealed to us as he wanted us to see him as a baby, meek and mild, cast out in the arms of a young woman visited by peasant in a barn. That's the picture God wants you to see. It was this scene that brought angels from heaven to sing and light up the sky. And it's this scene where God was most glorified, right? Glory to God in the highest. And this is where our peace is found. This is where our favor and goodwill is found. 
Not in any other circumstances or situation or season. This picture. If that doesn't prove to you that God was interested in, in getting our attention uh, against, in spite of the shape that we were in, uh, you know, then I don't know what I, don't know what I can, can give you. It's from that picture that he invites you to come and see what he can do with your life. He still works miracles. Maybe not the way you'd expect him to, always. But in ways that leave the world a different place and leaves us speechless. Maybe that's the miracle beyond miracles, that God painted this picture and said, you know what that means? It means that you are my favorites. That y'all are the reason why I did this. Yeah, Jesus is the reason for the season. But the other reason is that the world was broken. The world was dark and it needed light. That you and I were lost and we needed to be found. And against all the bad things and the dark things, God turned the light on just for us. That's the greatest miracle that Christmas has for you and has for me. That we don't have to be lost anymore. And that we don't have to be hopeless anymore. Because Jesus has come. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the good news of Christmas. Thank you, Lord, that all the things that were working against us in the world, all those things that you set as a backdrop in the world, Lord, all that was part of your plan so that you, your, your intervention and, and your dwelling with us would, get, would receive even more attention. Lord, thank you that we can look at this picture of the manger, of the stable where the baby was laid, and we can see that's what you want us to think about this time of year. That when it's very dark and when we've lost our way in the wilderness, in the outcast, you have come to be with us. And we can look at you and we can trust that you have come to save us. And the miracle of it all is that in spite of what our condition is, you accept us as we are and you've come to be with us where we are so that we might find our way to you forever. Lord, thank you for Christmas. Thank you for the miracle working power that you never cease to work from it. Thank you for changing everything 2,000 years ago and thank you for continuing to change us with the story. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.